This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. In many ways, it's all about the family. That's what we spend a lot of time talking about here on the show. We're all born into a family, and we all hope that family will surround us when we exit this world. In between, family provides us with our greatest joys and our deepest sorrows. Unfortunately, families have always been our main reference point and the basis for a lot of the terminology and metaphors we use in our day-to-day life. Our similes and our semantics, the way that we structure our arguments, and our symbols, many of them use family as a frame of reference, but only not even two decades into the 21st century, the family, according to a lot of people, is our most threatened institution. And the fear that we should all be feeling is that if the family goes down, it will take everything else with it. Of course, before we could look objectively and constructively at what's happening to the family and where family is going, we really need to have a clear understanding of what family is. Trying to define the word family can be kind of a tricky proposition. But tricky propositions have never stopped us at Positive Parenting from discussing a difficult subject, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing in this part of today's show. What is a family? Is there an optimal type of family? Is the family really under siege after all, or is that just something that we hear about in the media? And most importantly, no matter where we're going, what are we going to do to make things better? More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. My name is Dale Pazinski, and this is how I live United. I volunteer with United Way, helping the homeless in my community by teaching computer skills and helping them build a basic resume to save on their very own USB drive. It's huge when somebody says, hey man, that job that you helped me apply for, I got it. My name is Dale Pazinski. I help people achieve financial independence. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Richard Iyer, who's the co-author with Linda of The Turning, Why the State of the Family Matters and What the World Can Do About It. Richard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Armin. Glad to be with you. Can you set the stage for us a little bit and tell us what the state of the family is right now before we talk about why it matters? Sure. And let me let me do it in, in kind of a personal matter. We've... Uh... My wife, Linda, and I have written a lot of parenting books over the years, and some have been national bestsellers and so on, but we we became a little discouraged here the last few years because it seems no matter how good parents are as far as their methodologies or their parenting techniques or whatever, uh, parenting is getting harder. And the reason we think it's getting more and more difficult is that uh, 
our kids are are part of so many different cultures. They're part of the media culture. They're part of the internet culture. They're part of the celebrity culture. And a lot of parents just don't feel like they can keep up with that. They just uh, they they feel like they're they're almost powerless. And so we decided on this occasion we wanted to not write uh, just another how-to book, but more of a why-to book, if you will, where we're essentially saying let's spend the first half of the book examining what's happening to our families and to our culture, to our society. And then within that context, then we can take a look as parents and say, now now that we understand what we're up against here, how can we go about building a family culture that actually is strong enough to supersede all these other cultures? And so uh, in order to do that kind of a sequence in the book, we, more than we ever have before, really became research-oriented and really tried hard to look at the state of the family. And uh, there's a lot of problems out there, Armin, and, and a lot of them have to do with the hesitancy that people have to make strong commitments. We've got a lot of kids being born where their parents aren't married. They're born into cohabiting situations, and and we've got a lot of situations where, uh, as everyone knows, dads are not manning up and facing their responsibilities and families just aren't uh, quite as tough and resilient as they used to be nor are they getting as much help from the surrounding community as they used to well even the definition of family has changed quite a bit since you first started writing and i've been writing about parenting for for quite a number of years also that you know there there were certainly more married couples but now there's there's blended families, a lot more blended families than there used to be right. just a couple generations ago. And there's two moms or two dads or there's even this thing. I It's happened in, in England. It's not happened here yet where there was a, a court judgment that ruled that the, a child could actually have three parents. One yeah. was the the donor. One was the, the surrogate mother who was somehow biologically related to the child. So it's just defining the word is complicated. Yeah, and we intentionally tried to avoid that uh that debate, if you will, in, in writing the book. In other words, uh, I mean, we we see a lot of problems with all those definitions, but at the same time, we wanted to kind of get away from, let's not argue about what a family is. Let's focus on the kids. Let's focus on what children need and are they getting it. And that led us to focus on the commitment level. So, And, and we felt it was appropriate and, and logical to to, to worry about commitment without blaming it on some reconfiguration of families. In other words, uh, the, the reason we think that a two-parent family is the best for kids has nothing to do with the fact that it's one man and one woman. It has to do with the fact that it turns out that our research shows that is the family where the commitments are the strongest and there is the most, there's the highest percentage chance of that union and that commitment to the child lasting over a long period of time. So without making any judgments or any moral sort of stands, we just say we're looking for the family that is strongest in its commitment to standing by the children and raising responsible adults. Right. No, I think that's that's one of the most important points you're making so far is that really the, the big deal is the children. 
It doesn't. Yeah, exactly. in, in many ways, it doesn't matter because they have two dads, two moms, or three, whatever. As long as everybody's looking out for the kids and how they're going to thrive in in the world, it, you know, we're we're going to make do with the rest of it. Yeah, and part and interestingly, part of that, I mean, it's not a matter, in our opinion, of sort of shaming the the parents into being better or sending them on a guilt trip or whatever. It's it's more about popularizing parenting. It's more. It's more about essentially trying to say, you know what, the biggest joy in life, as it turns out, is is to be a parent and to, and to sacrifice some of your own personal options in order to make a commitment to a marriage and to your children, and th- you know that's not only the best thing for the kids. It turns out over time that's the best thing for you. That's the that's the happiest lifestyle. That's the way, and and that becomes more and more manifest the older people get. You know, that's one of the things we find so interesting is that, um, you know, avoiding op- avoiding commitments and keeping your options open and cohabiting instead of marrying and, and trying to avoid too much being tied down, that, that seems to be attractive to people maybe in their 20s, in their 30s, maybe even in their 40s. I'll tell you, about the time you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s, happiness is is it's more and more obvious to people that happiness is related to their relationships and how long they've lasted and how committed they are not to how much freedom they were able to enjoy all through the process so where are we then family wise how how have things changed and why is it that that you feel that the family's in decline i mean i i can't i mean i think if you ask parents today or you ask parents 30 years ago that they would all say, well, my children are, are the top priority. I want what's best for them. So what yeah, has changed I in I, that? I don't think the right way to say it is that families are in decline. I think a, a more accurate way to say it is because I, we, don't, we don't see parents today who are less committed to their children, at least in theory. Right, in fact, right. I, would, I would even say this, Armin. Parenting is probably something we work at harder today than we ever have before. I mean, if you go back even 15 years or so, parenting wasn't even a word you would hear. You know, I mean, it was just something you did. You didn't, you didn't go around talking about parenting and the techniques of parenting near as much as we do today. So in some ways, we're more conscientious about it than ever before, but we live in an environment where, um, you know, there's there's this sort of attitude that leads us to more personal entitlement and more uh, selfish interest in our options and a little less tendency to commit. And you, on top of that, you've got this this internet culture. You've got uh, you've got a, a series of sort of distractions happening both to you and to your children that parents a decade or two ago didn't have to face. Okay, and what are those though? Well, I mean, take a, you know, we uh, we go out and speak to parents all the time, and we say, what's your biggest worry? And, and what they'll always say is, I just, I just, I can't even, you know, my kids are so occupied with their electronics and with their technology and with their peer group, I don't see where I even fit into their lives anymore. And, and I think the distractions are just so great to the kids, and... I think, parent, you know, this seems almost hard to imagine, but if you go back 20 years, most parents actually thought that the community surrounding them was supporting them, was helping them raise their kids, you know, because you had the, 
the clubs and you had the church and you had the neighborhood and people seemed to work together and everyone sort of seemed to have the same goal of raising kids, sort of where the it takes a village phrase came from back in the day. And now you, you talk to parents and they you ask them, are, are you getting help from the surrounding cultures? No, I'm getting, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm standing alone. I feel like the values I'm trying to teach are not being reinforced by the media or by the Internet or by the peer group. So I'm sort of, it's me standing alone against all these other forces. And that, that's why so many parents are discouraged right now and wondering what they're going to do next. I'm talking with Richard Iyer, who's the co-author with his wife, Linda, of The Turning, Why the State of the Family Matters and What the World Can Do About It. He and Linda are also the authors of a number of best-selling books on parenting and different varieties of parenting. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking with Richard Iyer about the challenges that families are facing. I want to talk about the media a little bit, about some of the false paradigms, the bad ideas that parents get into their heads. And most of all, though, I want to try to focus on what we can do about all this. I'm Armand Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Richard Iyer, who's the co-author with his wife, Linda, of The Turning, Why the State of the Family Matters and What the World Can Do About It. Uh, so we've been talking a little bit about how things have changed and that your, your, your idea, and I think it's, it's a good one, that we're paying more attention to parenting now than we have for quite a while. I mean, that's you know the whole rise of the the tiger parents and the helicopter parents and the snowplow parents and all these different kind of models is based, I think it comes from a good place. You know, people are trying to protect their children from the, the what's going on in the world. But I'd like to hear you talk just a little bit more about some of the, the challenges. And in the book, you talk about the connection, just the connection. And I guess you were you were addressing that a little bit with uh, the fact that they, people are not getting the same sort of support from their their surrounding communities. Well, not only not getting the right support, but facing, uh, I think, an increasingly materialistic sort of entitlement mentality out there, which really, really affects kids. And I, uh, you know, I mean, clearly, Armin, there, there are a lot of really dark problems in in families where where there's economic problems and where the dad's left and where the mom's trying to work five jobs and so on and and we we're not we're not really qualified to to deal with a lot of those problems most of the things we're talking about in the book is you know here's a uh, the type of family that would buy a parenting book is probably a family that's trying very hard they want to do their best they want to raise responsible kids, and and yet at the same time they're trying to keep up with the Joneses, and they're they're likely both working as a mom and a dad, and the kids um, are really subject to a very entitlement-oriented economy. And and when we say to parents, uh, you know, what does the entitlement attitude mean to you? It's almost a mantra. They can almost repeat verbatim. 
what their kids say, and it's the same all across the country. I deserve everything, and I want it right now, and I don't want to have to wait for it or work for it. And and that sort of mentality is is a huge problem for parents because a kid who feels entitled sort of loses his motivation, loses his incentive, loses even his creativity sometimes. And so part of what we're suggesting as a solution is that if you wanna if you wanna really raise kids that uh, that are gonna grow up to be responsible adults, the first thing, ironically, that you have to start doing is stop giving them so much, stop handing out money to them, stop allowances that aren't tied to any kind of performance. Try to set up a little family economy where kids actually do certain things around the home and and how much they get for their allowance is based on how well they remember to do their their jobs and think about the family as a shared responsibility with the kids and and so that that's one of the things and then the other one which we really have been focusing on a lot lately is helping kids to have an identity larger than themselves helping them to to sort of have a family narrative we we're finding that families who teach their kids uh, a little about their grandparents and about their great-grandparents and where they came from, what their genealogy is, that not only the good things that those ancestors did, but the hard times they had. That seems to build into kids this sense of identity. And yeah, I like to go with my friends and I like to be online and I like to play video games and so on, but who I really am is I am a descendant of these four grandparents and these eight great-grandparents, and I have, I know about them. I have stories about them. I can be strong when I have a difficult time, just like they were. And they had to struggle, and sometimes I have to struggle. And so it's kind of this idea of building a family culture that centers around a family narrative and about personal responsibility and saying that's who we are in this mm-hmm. home and and even though you've got friends that may not do that that's what we do that's what that's what our family does and we're strong as a family and kids it turns out kids love that they'll complain about it they'll moan and groan about oh, yeah, it but sure. deep down that's where they're getting their security so richard you talk about the one of one of the challenges being parents perspectives that are being distorted by false paradigms and you talk about how the people perceive something that is really the minority to be the majority. Talk about that a little bit, the false paradigms. Well, and, and that's fed a lot. I, I don't mean to blame media for everything, but that's fed a lot by media. A lot of kids, uh, you know, that, that watch just primetime TV or just go to normal movies uh, sort of have the feeling that, um, you, you know, Everybody should have a new car. Everybody should have this and that and the other. And, uh, you know, what you do is you go to bed with a girl on the first date and, and so on. I mean, there's a lot of paradigms out there that are just false, and yet the media feeds them. Um, you know, we've got some friends who are pollsters, and, and we were talking to one of them the other day, and he was saying that one of the hardest things to get accurate information on with kids is on polls, when you poll them, is, is how, whether they're sexually active or not. And, and this guy made an interesting comment. He said, 25 years ago, you could not get accurate information because if kids were sexually active, they were ashamed to admit it. They wouldn't tell you. Now, he says, it's exactly the opposite. You, you ask kids if they're a virgin, and if they are, these high school kids, they don't want to admit that. 
they want to tell you they're sexually active even if they're not. So you've got you've got some really strange paradigms where where a minority is masquerading as a majority and kids fall into that and they sort of begin to think that their own parents and their own the values they're trying the parents are trying to teach them in their own home are are, are old fashioned they're dinosaurs they don't exist anymore where why can't my parents get up to speed with what's really happening in the world when the fact is the parents are still the majority right right and and you know still we don't talk about this a lot, but the the two parent family is still predominant. I mean, it, exactly. it, it's, it's yeah, going we, and 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 see that's that's what we ought to be talking more about is look how great is it that we're still uh, the major our majority is slipping, <laughs> but we're still we could still win an election. I mean, there's still more than fifty one percent who are two parent families who really have similar values who really want to teach those values. But you're not finding a lot of that on the media. You're not finding a lot of primetime shows about a sort of boring two-parent family that really has strong values and gets along just fine in the world. Well, let me ask you something that I ask a, a lot of people who have books, and I ask this of myself when I'm writing. So what is it that we can do? Because really and truly, I mean, sitting and saying, well, we're going to you know, undo the media or we're going to you know, do various kinds of things. I mean, it, it, you're swimming upstream if, you're, if you think you're going to be changing the media too terribly much. That's exactly right. And that's what, that's what made this book a real departure for us. Because on the one hand, we're saying, let's recognize what's wrong in the bigger society that surrounds us. But let's not kid ourselves that we're... I mean, this isn't a book that has the final solution of writing your congressman or picketing a product you don't like or or, or right, boycotting which, which we'll a TV do show that, that's, that's amoral. Because we don't have time, frankly, you know. I mean, if that ever did have an effect, our kids would long be raised and gone. We want something that we can do right now. And so the whole second half of the book is really saying, look, Let's let's face the reality that we know is out there, and let's and let's not be discouraged by it. Let's actually let it motivate us to be more proactive, to create a strong family culture, and and we we always tell parents that really involves probably four main things, Armin. Number one, having this family narrative we're talking about, where kids really feel that they have an identity larger than themselves. Two, having the kind of family economy we talked about where people share responsibility and kids learn that they have to earn things and they have to learn delayed gratification. Third, having a family legal system. That sounds a little funny, but having some simple family laws that, that have been well discussed with kids and the kids know what they are and they understand what the punishment is if they break them and, and you know, really buying into that and getting the kids to buy into it. And fourth, having these wonderful family traditions, which every family has, but which we can all sort of improve and, and retool and make them so they really teach values to our kids, having birthday traditions and Sunday mm -hmm. traditions and holiday traditions and so on. And it seems in our research and our experience working with families that Families that, that are proactive enough to set up those four things and work at them constantly, they are going to have uh, their, their family culture is going to overpower and supersede all these other cultures that are, that are swirling around our kids.
and they're going to succeed. They're going to raise responsible kids despite the world that these kids are growing up in. Richard Iyer is the co-author with his wife, Linda, of The Turning, Why the State of the Family Matters and What the World Can Do About It. Richard, a pleasure to have you. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Armin. I hope we do it again sometime. Hi, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and it's time for another Parents at Play segment. As many of you know, I've got an 11-year-old, and I can tell you that the older she gets, the harder it is to find games and toys and activities that we can do together because she's got so darn much other stuff going on. So this week, I wanted to focus on toys and games that you might be able to do with a tween or a pre-tween. Let's start off with Bounce Off from Mattel. So you have to envision the playing board, which is a 6 by 6 grid. You and your opponent bounce colored ping pong balls into that grid, and what you're trying to do is match the design on one of the challenge cards. It's really one of these things that's simple but not easy. It's probably going to remind you a little bit of one of those carnival games, you know, the kind of the county fair where you spend about 50 bucks trying to bounce a ping pong ball into the mouth of a bottle so that you can win a giant panda or something like that that you don't really want and probably could have bought for $25 anyway, and it's too big to fit in your car. But Bounce Off is a lot cheaper, and it's a lot more fun. Now, there are two different levels of cards. There's the easier ones that maybe have two or three balls in a row, and that could be like an L shape or a a plus shape. Or there are harder ones, which are are a lot more difficult to do. They may require six balls, not in a row, but six balls in some various configuration, and they're pretty hard to do. So you'll be able to play it with kids of varying levels of coordination and interest. Bounce Off is for two to four players aged five and up, but I think it's really going to be more interesting for the tweens. Costs about 18 bucks at places like Target, or you can look at Mattel.com. Next up, we've got the Science X Fueling Future Car from Ravensburger. Sure, you know, everybody talks about solar power and fuel cells, but does anyone know exactly how they work? Well, by the time you are done putting together this very cool model, you and your child absolutely will. So you start with the guide, which explains what an electric car is and what all the components are. And then the real work starts. This kit comes with almost all the switches and solar cells and magnets and other stuff you need to conduct nine separate propulsion-related projects. All you need to do is supply the battery. You and your child are going to have a blast discovering the future of automotive technology. And the cars you build, this is the best part of all, they actually work. The Science X Fueling Future Car is about $44. It's best for kids who are 8 and up, or you can get it at Ravensburger.com. Next up, we've got Girl Mazing from Jada Toys. Girl Mazing is a line of remote control cars that's aimed at girls. You can get a Chevy Camaro, a Ford Mustang, a Lamborghini Murcielago, and a Jeep. All of them are 1 16th scale and customizable. Each one comes with a lot of different colored stickers. And speaking of colors, they're pink. I I really don't understand why so many products for girls have to be pink. As the dad of three daughters, I can assure you that girls are interested in other colors as well. But pink or not, the girl-mazing models are a great way for parents, especially dads, to connect with their daughters. The Jeep is $24.95. All the rest of them are $19.99. And you can get them at your favorite retailer or at jadatoys.com. 
Jetta has another line of remote control vehicles that's, I guess, aimed a little bit more at boys. It's called the Hypercharger RC Vehicles, and this one really is bye-bye batteries. The vehicles in this new line come with a built-in rechargeable battery. You can just plug it into almost any device that's got a USB port. You can choose from a Bentley, a Continental, a Camaro, Mustang, Dodge Challenger, Scion, Chevy Silverado, and a Ford F-150. Great fun for the remote control enthusiast and his or her children. Yes, 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 that means you. You have to share. It's for ages 6 and up. The cars are $19.99 and the trucks are $24.99. You can get them at Walmart or Amazon or, again, at jadatoys.com. And finally, we've got the Graphic Skins Design Studio from Rose Art, and Skins has a Z at the end. This is a really unique, fun toy that tweens and teens are going to want to use over and over again. The concept is kind of similar to those rub-on tattoos, but it's a lot cooler. It starts with a battery-operated suction chamber. Then you grab just about any object that will fit into the chamber. You pick one of the full-color skins. You wrap it up in a wet sponge, which comes with it. Then when you fire up the suction chamber, it sucks all of the air and the water out of everything, and it basically plasters on the skin right onto whatever object you're doing. The chamber itself costs about $30, and the kits are about $12 to $20, depending on how big they are. Each one of the kits includes a snap-apart and snap-together model. That allows you to do a different design on each part, which is very, very cool. i got to say, though, it does take an awful lot of time. However, I think your tween and early teen is going to stick with it because it is so engaging and so fun. You can get some more details about these and many, many other toys and games we reviewed at parentsatplay.com. We'll have another segment for you next week. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. We'll have another segment for you next week, but don't go quite yet because, as you know, there's a lot more positive parenting coming up. I'm Armin Brott. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. This heavyweight bout is about to begin. The challenger wears white trunks with a blue stripe, and the champ is wearing, uh, looks like an examination gown from the doctor's office. And from the back, we can... Ooh, that's not pretty. Champ, what's with the crazy getup? I've got to take care of my family. Yeah, so? Well, when you love your family, you got to go in and get those important medical screenings. A lot of potentially deadly diseases could be treated if you catch them in time. So you wear the examination gown because... Because I'm a real man. Real men take care of their families and get those tests. Real men wear gowns. Okay, champ. Good luck. Here we go. <laughs> the champ's not wasting any time. <laughs> oh. It's over. This fight is over. Champ, you barely broke a sweat. Any words for your fans out there? Remember, go to ahrq.gov for a list of the tests they need to get and when to get them. What was that web address again? ahrq.gov. And remember, real men wear gowns. Go to ahrq.gov. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AHRQ, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting. With Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. As parents, we spend an awful lot of time thinking about what we should be doing in a variety of situations. 
But what do we actually say when we're in those situations? What do you say when your child is bold-faced lying to you and blaming something on somebody who doesn't exist, an imaginary friend or somebody who isn't even in the room at the time? And what do you say when they ask you about where babies come from? And what do you say when they ask you about death? What if they ask you questions that really make you feel uncomfortable or ignorant about race? And what do you say to a child you love more than anything in the world who says, I'm not good at anything? Or how come I'm not like the cool kids? And what do you do if your child's being bullied at school or if your child is the bully at school? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a writer, a blogger, and a very funny guy, that's all one person, by the way, about what to say in those and a lot of other situations, and also why so many of the parenting phrases you hear at the playground or the museum or any place else you go actually encourage your child to misbehave. From life to death to everything in between, he's going to show us how we can connect with our kids and address even the toughest parenting dilemmas with love and perhaps most of all, with humor. So grab a pencil because you're not going to want to miss any of this. I'm Armin Brott. We'll jump right into our discussion about what to say to the kids when positive parenting continues right after this. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Now, my guest for this part of today's show is Whit Honey, who's the author of The Parent's Phrase Book, hundreds of easy, useful phrases, scripts, and techniques for every situation. Whit, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. That's a, a rather broad topic and, and a, yeah. a rather, rather large claim for every situation. I like to keep my options open. <laughs> That's right. Yes, so at least there's going to be something in here for everybody. So you know, there's you're a, a very funny guy, and anybody who's read your your blog, which is Honey Express H O N E A, has come to terms a little bit with your sense of humor. I mean, how do you straddle the line between just going straight humor and having lots of really solid advice? My my publisher had more to do that with, with that than than I did. They actually reined me in quite a bit at the beginning. They thought that I was being a little too funny, and. My theory is that parenting, more or less, is, is a fun experience, and it, it should be fun, and life is short, and you should have a good time and enjoy the moment. Obviously, there are many instances where you need to be a bit more practical and, and uh, stoic or sober or whatever the occasion calls for. But for the most part, I think that having a sense of humor in any situation goes a very long way, and, and I think that that translates in, into the way that uh, I, I write and the way that I talk about my children and the interactions that I have with my family. No, that's great. Keeping a sense of humor is really, I think, one of the best things you can do. And it certainly can diffuse a, a tense situation or something that looks like it's heading towards a, a horrible conclusion can be turned and with, with a little bit of humor or a joke of some kind can can really make it better. I mean, it's, right. 
right? Yeah. And dealing with uh, with kids, or, you know, kids are people too, as the old show uh, claimed. You know, you, you have a, a child in a situation where it may be very difficult for them to communicate with you, and maybe they are embarrassed or they're afraid or whatever. Any number of emotions that they may have that is going to keep them from opening up and relating to them on a on a, a level of humor. I think makes it so much easier and. and most of the time that conversation will then happen the way that you want it to happen or, or you were hoping it would happen because you loosen up a little bit and and uh, put them at ease. You know, one of the places where they have some difficulty communicating sometimes, or, or they wouldn't say it's difficulty, they would blame it on somebody else, is, is that exact idea of blaming it on somebody else. No, it wasn't me. Somebody else did that. Or right. he hit me first. How do you begin to talk to a child when you come walking in the room and there's your... 200-year-old Ming vase on the floor in pieces, and there's only one child there who says it wasn't me. <laughs> I, I immediately think of the family circus cartoons, right, with the not-me ghost oh, yeah. hovering in the corner over the broken uh, vase, as you said. Uh, I think that you kind of have to let them realize how the situation looks from your viewpoint. Because if you walk into a room and, as you said, there's just one person there and there's something that has happened, it's pretty clear that they are responsible. And, and you know, once they weave their tale of uh, space aliens and the dog you don't have, you know, maybe let them go through that and then you can kind of repeat it back to them and, and, and say, so this is what happened. Let me get this straight. And they can see how it is and then that's kind of where humor might come in I mean, obviously there may be repercussions and the child may be reprimanded for the behavior and also for the added behavior of is, is it a lie it's a fib I don't know what you would call that situation but uh, ha having them kind of step up and that, that's something I always w want to do with my own kids is make sure they realize that right or wrong is better that they're honest about something and they own up to something than to try to deny it, because in the end, that's going to be a, a bigger issue than than the initial, than the pause. And I mean, I mean, pause, those are a dime a dozen, right? <laughs> I've got four or five of them <laughs> in, in pieces, but yeah. You know, you, you touch on this right. a little bit, that, you know, do you think that somebody, whoever it is, should be punished for something? I was wondering if, what you think of the idea of saying to a child, just you're playing along with this thing about, you know, do you think that somebody should be punished for that? Or what do you think would be an appropriate way to deal with the dog who comes in here and, and breaks us, or your friend who was here but climbed out the window just seconds before I got here. Right. Do you think that that person should have some sort of consequences, and what would those be? Well, I, I guess it depends on, on what it was and what it means to you and, and how it happened. If it was an honest accident, once you get to the truth, but as you said, to let them play it out, there are steps you could take in that, and obviously it depends uh, on the situation and, and and a lot of it has to do with your own state of mind at that point. I mean, that may have been something that was very important to you, and you may not be in the mood to turn it into a learning moment. And maybe that was the last straw. And so you, you, you as a parent may not be in a position to to kind of let it play out. Let's say that they do blame it on a friend that climbed out the window. How about you tell them that, uh, well, let's go over there, and we'll talk to your friend, and we'll talk to their parents. You know, and the, the, the more you call their bluff, 
at some point they're going to break. <laughs> they don't want to. They don't want to go over and sit in their friend's living room accusing their friend of doing something that they know their friend didn't do. You know, so they're, hopefully they can see that as you put as put it before them. But as far as what the punishment would be, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I grew up in a. I, I feel like I was grounded the majority of my childhood, and <laughs> it was. I was always out in the yard doing chores and and things as a punishment for things that uh, that I had done. I can't even tell you a single thing that I did to warrant that. I'm, I'm sure it seemed legit at the time. I, Because of that, I don't necessarily go to that with my kids. They, they do. They lose privileges, and, and there are always repercussions for negative behavior. But I hope that by talking to them and having them understand why something is a negative behavior, the first time especially, I'm willing to let that go if I feel that they have an understanding of it and they don't want it to happen again. You know, if, if they do oh, yeah. again and it becomes yeah. an issue, then, then, of course, we'll discuss it at that point. Right. And, and you raise the stakes. You know, one of the things I really like about the book, and this is just to stay on this particular theme, was that you always have kind of at the end of every section what not to say, which brings <laughs> brings back a little bit of seriousness in there. And, and in this particular one, you know, you're not supposed to say, I know it was you. You broke my heart. Uh, it's, I mean, that there's something very poignant about that and, and speaks right to exactly what parenting is. You know, be careful what you say to your children. Is it really, do you want to put that much pressure on a child by saying you broke my heart or you shattered my expectations or something like that? Exactly. And I, I will say that a lot of those what not to do in the book are things that I have done. I, it was very therapeutic writing the book and thinking about these different situations and realizing that I have so much room for improvement in my own life and looking at the things that I had done and wishing that I had handled them differently. Uh, to that, as far as saying things like that to a child, we're all human and everybody has different levels of self-control when it comes to <laughs> saying things and sometimes you just fly off the handle, it just hits you the wrong way. And I can remember specific instances, and my parents were very, very loving parents. Uh, by no means do I want to insinuate that wasn't the case. But I can remember my parents saying things to me when I was a young child out of anger, and I know that there's no way they actually meant those things. But just being so upset in that moment and saying things to me at 8 or 10 years old that I still remember that feeling and, and that, that moment. And I'm not proud of the fact that I know that I have put my kids in that, that similar situation over the years. And I don't know now how that's going to play out. I'd like to think that, uh, you know, with their short attention span these days, that maybe they don't <laughs> They're not dwelling on it like I did. But, but I know that I've done that. You know, it's interesting that you, you point that out because you were saying that you don't remember the things that you were punished for, that you were grounded for, but you do remember the way a punishment felt, yes. which is, I, I, that's a really powerful idea as for, to, for us parents to understand that, that it may not be what you do, it's how your child feels when you've done it that, that is leaving the longest scars or the longest lasting scars. Right, and, and to that point, do you want your child to avoid whatever that behavior is that, that is being discussed? Should they avoid that because it's the wrong behavior, or should they avoid it because it's going to make you upset. 
you know, those are two different things. And I would like to think that when it's all said and done, my kids are choosing right or wrong because it's right or wrong, not because it's going to make daddy upset. Granted, you could use that uh, as a learning tool, and there's plenty of leverage in that. But at the end of the day, I want them to walk around doing things because they believe it's right or wrong and not because of the repercussions they might face should I find out. Right. Talking to Whit Honey, who's the author of The Parents' Phrase Book, hundreds of easy, useful phrases, scripts, and techniques for every situation. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Whit. want to get into spanking and friendships and life and death. I'm Armand Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Whit Honey, who's the author of the Parents Phrase Book, hundreds of easy, useful phrases, scripts, and techniques for every situation. And since I know a lot of you are listening online, you're probably looking at Amazon online at the same time. It's Honey, H-O-N-E-A. Whit, thanks for sticking with us. Of course. Thank you. I write a lot about parenting, you know, and every time I talk about spanking, there are a lot of people who say who write in and say, oh, boy, that's exactly right. You should never spank your kids. And then there are a handful of people who write in and say basically, well, you know, when I was a kid, my, my dad or my mom or my uncle or the teachers smacked me upside the head and taught me never to do that again. And I'm, I'm always intrigued when people have a section in their book and you do in your book about spanking. What's the reaction been to that? To just the very fact that you've got a section that's called a case against spanking. People some won't even read past that. You know, I, I feel that because of my online presence in the parenting field, that I am approachable by uh, parents can reach me easily, and I get real-time feedback. on. And I've written about this over several different uh, platforms and online magazines, and I've always felt that, that that way. And so I think I've almost become uh, numb to any sort of negative reaction I might get. But I would say that generally speaking, most people tend to agree, and maybe I'm just preaching to the choir, but I, I haven't had a lot of, for lack of a better word, trolling on that particular subject. I think that most people, uh, a lot of people will say, as you said, that they were spanked when they were kids but they don't necessarily turn that into an endorsement or carrying it on with with a new generation. Yeah, I still remember when I was a kid in in school, probably fourth, fifth, sixth grade, when I was going to one particular elementary school, that I was I spent an awful lot of time in the principal's office, and a great deal of that time was spent with my hands over the side of the desk and this guy paddling me with a with a wooden paddle. That they still right. were doing that. It's like, that was okay. My parents weren't hitting me, but, you know, the school was taking care of that for, for everybody. And I just, I mean, I still remember that and think, how is it that we allowed you know, the kind of institutional abuse to happen without, right. you know, because it would I, I, clearly I, be that. Same experience. I went to public schools. You know, I'm uh, 43 years old, so it's not like it was that long ago that I was in school. And it was, but it wasn't, you know, and to think that that was the norm just uh, 25, 30, well, I guess it was a long time ago. <laughs> but the, the fact that that was a normal thing that society was okay with. And it's funny, I am friends with uh, 
one of my principals from elementary school is a friend of mine on Facebook. And I know, and he is a very caring uh, gentleman. And then I've really come to appreciate his friendship now as an adult. But it's, it's interesting to me to think that that was a job requirement for him. And the man was an educator and somebody who cared deeply about children and education. And it's interesting to me that at some point, he had to accept the fact that his job entailed spanking the children of other people. <laughs> you know, Which I'm sure he wouldn't want other people to do to his kids. What have happened at work? What you do today? Oh, I did this, I did that, and I spanked three kids. You know, that's bizarre. It is. It really is. And there was another one that I thought was a, a very poignant one, but it really opens up the opportunities for, for humor, but also for guidance. And this, this happens a lot. And both of us were talking before we went on the air. We both have 11-year-olds, and they're kind of on the cusp of this sort of thing, coming in and saying, I wish I was good at something. I'm not good at anything. That just seems that you, you want to cry about that almost. It's like, how could you possibly? I mean, just look at what you're doing and look what a great kid you are. But how do you deal with that, that particular kind of situation? And you're going to be dealing with it more, more and more as this, the kids get uh, into the teen years. Right. And that is something that my, my 11-year-old has always been a little shyer and not a joiner as far as uh, organized activities. And he and my 6-year-old are, are six-year-old. I'm in a time warp here. My eight-year-old <laughs> in a... Uh, there's night and day in that aspect. So, so my 11-year-old is always kind of beating himself up a little bit because he doesn't think that he's doing something as well as who I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I've never been able to get a clear answer at the, the comparison there. And is, is he not doing it well enough by his own standards or society or the kids on TV or somebody in his class? But he does have that all the time where he, he really feels that he isn't as good at something as he should be and frankly he's fantastic at most of these things and and if he's not who cares if he enjoys doing it you don't have to be the best at something to do it as long as you enjoy it yeah that's a tough lesson though i mean it, it's because there's so much pressure out there and there's so much it seems like reward for accomplishments at a particular level so it's not really how much how you feel about yourself it's about how everybody else feels about you I mean, as a, you know, from the perspective of a kid, that right. you know, if other people don't cheer and stand up and say you're fantastic, then how could you possibly be? I, I will say to, to counterpoint that, and I hope I don't mind a bit of a tangent here, but he was having some issues with, uh, he, he's, he was having some issues with anger. And so I decided that the way we would handle that is that we would go running. Every time that I saw this starting to happen, instead of letting him blow up, I'd say, hey, grab your shoes, let's go run. And I used to be a runner. I haven't been a runner in a very long time. And so this is something that the two of us started doing together, and all of a sudden it became something that he realized that he enjoyed and was good at. And all of a sudden he joined the cross-country team at school. He's never joined anything, and he joined this and, and just jumped into it. And now you know, we recognize that as a family, that that was something that he found that he – wanted to uh, continue and so now as a family we run together and we, we join organized races together and it's become a real bonding opportunity and a very healthy uh, pastime for us but all that came out of because he, he finally found something where he instead of saying I can't do this I can't do that he found something and said yeah I can do this and so we jumped in as, uh, as a family right away 
Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, there's a song that my 11-year-old listens to a lot, Echo Smith, and it's about the cool kids. And it's the, the verses are kind of like, I wish I could be like the cool kids. And you've got a section on there about the popular kids and sort of along the lines of what we're talking about. So a kid who thinks he's not good at anything, but there's also kids who are thinking that I'm not cool. And what do I do? I mean, everybody else is over there and they're having much more fun and they, you know, they don't include me and they don't invite me to their parties or, or to do homework with them or something, which is another one of these things you want to say. Are you crazy? People should be paying to spend time with you. You're such a great kid. <laughs> Right, exactly, and it's such a it's such a weird dynamic. You know, who establishes what is cool and what is popular for the for kids at that age? You know, at, at what point do kids who grow up together and who play together, you know, first, second, third grade, by middle school, how do they wind up in these different camps? You know, uh, it's it's a very interesting thing to me to watch and observe. But you're you're right. I. I don't think that they quite understand how awesome they are and, until it's all said and done. You know, when you're on the outside looking back at your your uh, school experience, th- then it's very apparent. But when you're living it, it's harder to recognize. And unfortunately, the, the peer pressure of, of, or the, the all, all the emotional things that happen to a child and the uh, hormones and everything that's going on, it's just it's all working against you. We've got just a minute or so left, but tell me one of the phrases that didn't make the cut, didn't make it into the book. You know, uh, I had a whole section in there about dealing with pets, and there's it's alluded to somewhat in the passing of pets, but for whatever reason, that didn't make it in there. And it's funny because it wasn't a specific phrase per se, but uh, just ways of helping kids uh, with responsibility and, and taking care of uh, another living thing and what to do. The part that did make it in there was what to do in the passing of a pet. But I, I thought it was an interesting omission by uh, my editor and the publisher, and they had their reasons, obviously, but that's something that people ask me about because, as you said, it says that there's hundreds of easy, useful phrases and scripts and techniques for every situation. Obviously, you have the book. It's not thick enough to have every situation in there. <laughs> and that is one. People who do read me online and know what an animal lover I am, they're always asking me why that isn't in there. And I'm just telling them, you know, it's, it'll be in the sequel. Yeah, it's got to be. Volume 2. Of course, when you said every situation in the first one, what do you say for the second one? For, the, for all the other ones that have come up since then. Exactly. Every situation at this time. What's the blog? The blog is Honey Express, and it's withhoney.com. Withhoney is the author of the Parents Phrase Book, hundreds of easy, useful phrases, scripts, and techniques for every situation. And we're just going to call this one Volume 1. Wit, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.